Hi folks, welcome to this book club of the Lotus Eaters. I'm joined by Stelios. Hello. And today we're going to be talking about the controversial Julius Evola and his work, Revolt Against the Modern World. Um, as you can see, this is massive, so this is undoubtedly going to be a two-parter. Uh, and the book itself is split into two sections. The first one is The World of Tradition. The second section is The Genesis and Face of the Modern World. Um, so part one, <coughs> um, I suppose I should preface this by saying Julius Evola was mental uh he was genuinely like genuinely off the reservation as far as a modern person is a concerned nutter. yeah a nutter right yeah. complete nutter as far as a modern person is concerned but he was also um a professor an intellectual an academic uh, incredibly well read incredibly knowledgeable about history and obviously an insanely smart man which is probably why he became a nutter right um and what so just the so there there are there are lots of people who think, oh, Evola is far right. And when they say far right, they mean a Nazi or a fascist. And no, uh, Evola is way further to the right than those people. Um, he is uh, what we could call a sort of Roman aristocrat. Uh, he is in this book, in part one of this book anyway, he is laying out the metaphysics that a, an ancient pre-Christian Roman would have believed in. Uh, an Egyptian pharaoh would have believed in, an Assyrian king would have believed in. So is it something like he was supporting far-right ideas in a pre-modern context? Yes, but okay. the, the Nazis and the fascists viewed him with suspicion because, yeah. of course, they're modernistic ideologies. They, they accept Enlightenment premises and they work from the position of having a liberal state to operate within. Um, or but, you, you could say, for instance, that... Uh, Nazism wasn't was uh, counter enlightenment. I don't know if I would because it uses all of the enlightenment's rational uh, tools, right? Okay. It, it views uh, classes and the state in the way that the liberals and socialists view classes and the state. Okay. Right. So it, it's morally opposed to all of those things, and it operates in a different direction. But the framework they use, the fascists particularly, I suppose, are exactly the same framework. You know. But wouldn't you say that the focus on blood and the truth of blood as opposed to the truth of reason is something that is counter-enlightenment? Well, to, to an extent. I don't know. Okay. Because it's... I don't think if you had spoken to a Nazi, they would have said we're against reason. They would have said our interpretation of reason necessitates this aspect of reality, okay. right? And, I mean, you know, there are people who say, well, the fascists were openly irrationalist. And that is true, but they still operated within the framework that was, they inherited. They didn't create a new framework. They still operated, they were just like, look, we just don't like liberalism, we don't like socialism. So they, essentially they were reacting to the dominant uh, ideology yeah. of the time. Yeah, explicitly. Okay. And you can see this in Gentili's Doctrine of Fascism, where he explicitly repudiates liberalism and socialism for various perceived failures, right? So it's... But he never repudiates the substructure upon which they rest. Okay. And Evola is repudiating all of that, right? Okay. He is, he is saying, no, no, no. Everything that happened from about 1776 onwards, bad. All of it, right? The, the conception of the state, the conception of liberalism, the conception of egalitarianism, the conception of man as uh, a sort of an, an equal human being. Like okay. The, the man as a, a, a unique, or not even unique, but as that can be broken down into an individual, uh, they're all wrong, right? And everything that followed from that was totally wrong. 
And so actually we need to go back to viewing the world in the sort of magical way that an ancient Roman or an ancient Greek or an ancient Egyptian would have seen the world. And that's what part one of this is. He's laying out their worldview, saying this is what they thought, right? And so beginning in part one, I'm going to mix up a little bit the order in which this comes just because it makes more sense to do it this way, I think. Um, but he begins by just explaining the universe as okay. these people thought. And he was like, look, the universe it begins with the doctrine of two natures, right? He says this, according to the doctrine of two natures, there is a physical order, thing, order of things, as in the real world, and a metaphysical order of things. There's a mortal nature and an immortal nature. There is the superior state of being and the inferior realm of becoming. Now, the realm of becoming is the material world because it changes and it's constantly moving. In motion. Yeah, yeah exactly. Whereas the superior state of being <clears throat> is just always eternally true. And immutable and necessary and... Yeah. Exactly. All of these things. And the, the purpose of all of this, really... Uh, the purpose of the, the concept of the revolt against the modern world is to make the material world as close to the transcendental world as possible, right? So the and the 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 all of the great accomplishments throughout human history were the the the, the material world almost or just about touching the transcendental world okay. before it falls away, right? And that's what the Roman Empire is like. This, it's building, building, building nearly at the transcendental universal empire, and then it falls. Okay, you know, and so. All of this is predicated on that kind of mentality. So correct me if I'm wrong, but the whole idea that he puts forward is that according to the ancients, mm -hmm. the world had two, let's say, aspects. One mm -hmm. was eternal and immutable. The other was contingent and in motion. Mm -hmm. And that the only, the, the purpose in life basically is to emulate or to approximate the ideal as much as possible. It's, it's not to emulate or approximate, <clears throat> it's to embody and bring into reality because when okay. you embody it you uh, he calls it um uh what was it he's got a particular term imminent transcendence yeah. is the term he uses so it brings it into reality even if it's only for a moment the the transcendent transcendental is made present in the world and that's okay. that's the spiritual goal of humanity okay as he's concerned um uh, the transcendental world is somehow above us and so to be aiming upwards towards the heavens is to be aiming towards the transcendent. And anything that isn't ordered in this way uh, essentially just looks downwards and will end up collapsing. And in fact, the fall of the world, the reason the world's getting worse than it used to be, despite the material abundance we have, is the fact that we, are, we haven't oriented ourselves towards the transcendent. We are, in fact, oriented downwards towards the material, and therefore everything is degrading into mere matter. Exactly, yeah. It's just material. And right? I, I want to say, because I, I haven't read the book, and uh, this is just, you know, I've read some of your notes yeah, about yeah. it. I want to say that this uh, reminds me of some of the thoughts I have about uh, some bad aspects of modernity. It seems mm. to me that nowadays it makes, it, it, it is very difficult to get people to agree to the idea that there can be something more than the physical. Well, this is precisely the, the <clears throat> goal of this book. He's yeah. early 20th century and he's railing against modernity as your describing. And I think that this is, this has a name. It's called scientism. Mm -hmm. And it's it, by and large, it's bequeathed to us uh, by David Hume. Mm -hmm. And uh, if you, for instance, walk into a philosophy department nowadays, most people would look at you very weirdly if you said that there are such, such things as 
transcendent mm. facts about moral facts, for instance. And the thing is, I think I could substantiate that. Yeah. Like so things like courage. Yeah. You know, that that you can't say that's a material thing. We are applying a metaphysical view on an act when someone does something courageous. I know, but it seems to me that, and that's a further problem of getting these ideas across, yeah. because if you try and convince hmm. someone who's in favor of scientism about yeah, yeah, yeah. this, uh, you will fail, and as I, as I have yeah. failed many times, because it's not that the argument doesn't work, hmm. but they just can't conceive of it yeah. and they say no it has to be naturalized yeah so the dominant ideology and the dominant the current intellectual orthodoxy mm. has it boils down everything to the material mm. and here we have an interesting paradox we have a we have the paradox of people who talk about morality and they they say on the other hand that everything is materialistic mm. but on the other hand they lament about materialistic culture and values and it seems to me that if you do not accept that there can be something more mm. than the material or the physical, you will have a lot of trouble. Where you can't explain how within your framework you can have something more than materialistic values. But the thing is, from that point onwards, you can't really ex explain why either. Because all you can do is appeal to, well, it, not feeling pain, not yeah. doing harm. It's like, but you're presupposing a metaphysical value on the concept of harm and pain. I'm not saying that pain and harm are bad, but I think actually they're quite necessary for character development, right? Obviously a reasonable amount, you know, don't just, you know, <laughs> lash people for the sake of it. But like, you know, skinning your knee, getting smacked by your parents, all of these things actually are painful and harm you, but are also good for you and necessary for your development as a human being. And so you can't just stigmatize, you know, they've, they've attached a value to these things whilst claiming they don't believe in these values. Yeah. So anyway... The point being is that actually it's kind of hard to get away from metaphysics, uh, whether yeah. we like it or not, you know. And Evola's just like, yeah, we should just embrace it. <laughs> yes, but I think there, there's another way of putting it. It's not necessarily that it's hard to break away from metaphysics. It's because uh, those who are in favor of scientism, mm. they do think of themselves as putting forward a materialistic metaphysics. Mm. I think it, mm. it has to do with the kind of metaphysics that people... Yeah. And the thing is that I think that nowadays especially, people have unfortunately come to think that morality is something that is a sort of uh, lie that we tell ourselves. Mm. And mm. a sort of uh, evolutionary created myth. Mm. And uh, it's, it's instrumentalized, it's, isn't it? Yes, exactly. Mor morality is a function. Yeah. So, but actually, a lot of people don't see it that way. They see the principle as being eternally true, whether yeah. it's upheld or not, you know. And the, Evola is definitely one of those guys. Yes. <laughs> definitely one of those guys. Uh, and so, the, the way that um, morality and transcendence is manifested in pre modern societies is through tradition and so this is a doctrine of traditionalism that he would uh, put it as and so um he says that according to tradition every authority is fraudulent every law is unjust and barbarous every institution is vain and ephemeral unless they are ordained towards the superior principle of being unless they are derived from above and oriented upwards so unless they're derived from transcendent transcendence and aiming at that everything is just man-made barbarism okay yeah so is he putting forward the idea that morality is uh, objective oh yes and necessary it's it's okay it's woven into the transcendental fabric of the universe okay so uh qu question about this 
Hmm. How can he square this with traditionalism? Let me contextualize hmm. a bit because I don't want, I, I yeah, want yeah. to. So the thing is that when someone is, he, when someone is a moral objectivist and thinks that morality doesn't end with the customs of a particular society, hmm. but for instance, ends with transcendental facts about morality, such as the one Evola mm -hmm. uh, appeals to. He cannot say that something is right because we're doing it. Because he could say that within the fallen yeah. contingent world of becoming, yeah. uh, there are many practices that can be wrong. Mm -hmm. So it seems to me that he is appealing to something external to those practices. Yes. Moral justification does not stop with, with uh, appeal to the practices of a particular culture, mm -hmm. but it stops with an external standard, appeal to which can be used in order for us to judge these yes. customs. So how does he square this with tradition? Well, he views tradition as the revealing of the external standard. Okay. So tradition is the method by which the external standard is, is instantiated in the world. And so what he has done is a worldwide comparative analysis on traditional okay. cultures. Okay, okay. That's and interesting. In yeah. it's, it's very interesting because he extracts from the commonalities between them all mm. the underlying principles and rules that they must have been following in order to get to the conclusions that they've got to. Yeah. And he tries to map out like the shape of the different... See, each one is different, and so they have different aspects. Yes. And so he's got uh, the masculine solar principle, which is the highest principle and then you've got the lunar feminine principle which is an earthly principle uh, which is a lower one but they are in intertwined and they do rely on one another and mm. the question is which principle is allowed to become predominant in a civilization and so you would have in say greece and rome the masculine principle is predominant and you can see this in their artwork right? they, they they love their beefy men uh, but then in india for example you'd say it's the lunar principle that's predominant, where you've got a much more strong feminine influence okay. in the, the culture generally, right? And so this is how, and he he has various uh, ways of ranking these things. Um, and so this is how he has come to these conclusions. He said, look, all of these traditions have these commonalities and they, they have contextual differences, but the civilizations themselves, that's a failing of the civilization to properly instantiate the golden principle, which is the okay. highest principle. So we can judge civilizations in terms of how they fare against the external standard. Yes. Okay. And there are high and lower ones. Yep. Depending according to the performance, let's yep. say. Yep. And and in fact, in book two, <clears throat> he talks about the um, the fact that we've abandoned the highest principle and settled for lower principles on the on the hierarchy of these principles is the reason our world's falling apart. And if we were striving for the golden principle, then the solar principle, then actually our world would be getting better instead. Okay, okay. Right? Yeah. And honestly, I'm mildly persuaded by this. Okay. Like this, like feminized, oh, everyone's equal, everyone gets a trophy, compared to the much more masculine, no, there's one winner, and you, you've you got to make sure it's you. You know, you've got to work hard and be as good as you can. That's what genuinely makes things better. This This lunar way of looking at things does make things fall apart i think i don't know if the i, I really am really unfamiliar with the lunar and the solar principle well, that you mentioned yeah. I, I i have a sort of idea but of what he means but it seems to me that one of the things that are really healthy mm -hmm. is a, a relative degree of realism mm -hmm. and it yeah, seems to me that realistic about this 
Um, I think there is in what he said. Because in a way, yes. No, no, accepting that there are yeah. differences between people and yes. differences between talents and, and the way people exercise the talents because I think that's way more important. Oh, yeah. It's, it's not so much the powers we have, but how we exercise them. Yeah. I know many people who have talents, but they don't do much about them because they are basically lazy. Well, and uh, it, other people who may exercise 100% of lesser powers and getting ahead. And it seems to me that what you're describing does seem to me to be a bit realistic and just saying, let's just stop with the idea that everyone should be equal in terms of performance and results and just accept, uh, we could say meritocracy in some cases. Would he? Yeah, no, he wouldn't commit to meritocracy. He wouldn't like the no, term. He, he wouldn't like the term. Okay. Um, but he, you are right. Like he is expressly hierarchical. Mm. Uh, where the, and so the 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 solar principle is the principle of the sun. Okay. The principle of the highest heavens. The principle towards which all competition sounds very strike. mighty. Oh, it, it's <laughs> it's the it's the Olympian gods. Yeah. You know, it's it's the most highest uh, masculine principle uh, and the lunar principle the silver principle the feminine principle is egalitarianistic okay. and you know it is towards equality and comfort and a lack of harm all these things and the, and in a way progressive he's not, parenting principle absolutely absolutely yeah. right in a way he's not wrong that these two poles and we'll talk about the polar symbolism in a bit the, these are things around which life revolves okay. for different people, right? And it's which one you should choose. And so for like, you know, the ancient Indians, they have the lunar symbolism and the lunar civilization, whereas the ancient Romans have the solar symbolism, sol invictus, you know, the unconquered and the, the eternal conquering hero who sets the order of the universe, right? And we, Or we, the lunar chaos where yeah. things, you know, it's from below and comes up rather than comes down pure mm. from the sky you know? and we we have also in plato the idea that the the sun is basically the the ultimate principle yeah. but I, I want to say what one thing is that uh it may be i i think it may be relevant to this yeah. because there is also another greek myth mm -hmm. i think it's the myth of phaethon who was someone who wanted to approach the sun but got uh so, so I forgot. Yeah, that, that was it. Too high to yeah, yeah. yeah. He flew too high, and yeah. uh, and he yeah. couldn't. Yeah. So there is also a tragic element there. There is, Ooh. and undoubtedly a warning from history. Yeah, the fact that that story <clears throat> exists. Um, but Evola doesn't care about that. Yeah, uh, he's just he's just mapping out. He's like, look, you know, you may as well die. You may as well die trying to be a solar man yeah. and live being a lunar man, right? Um, it's like death before dishonor. Oh, absolutely. Yeah, yeah. Okay. Uh, one hundred percent. Um, Would he very, be very quick to interpret everything as being dishonoring him? I don't know. <laughs> I don't know. Um, but anyway, so this, this is the general worldview that he's got. And so in this, you have lots of different things. And so we'll begin with the king, right? The, the king, uh, the, ten, the leader of the temporal world, uh, embodies what Evola calls regality. Mm. And so it's not just a king, but the, re the regal nature of the king is in the fact that he is in some way mystical okay. and represents a bridge between the temporal and the transcendental. Mm. He is the nexus point at which the, the magical overworld meets the real world. Yeah. In the ancient mind, this is, right? Uh, he says, in the world of tradition, the most important foundation of the authority and of the right of kings and chiefs is the, and the reason why they were obeyed, feared, and venerated was essentially their transcendent and non-human quality. 
So is this the idea that for, for a king to reign, that king needs to have a sort of symbolic Absolutely. nature in the minds of those who are governed? Yes. And in, in previous eras, you see this all the time. I mean, like yeah. in medieval Europe, the king was divinely ordained by God. In yeah. ancient Egypt, it was the pharaoh. Yes. In uh, ancient Greece, uh, ancient Rome, he was the Pontifex Maximus. Yeah. And the Pontifex means bridge builder. Yeah. Pontifex literally means bridge builder. But, you know, like, um, and he was the chief bridge builder between this world and the other world. You know, and so it, it you can see that he's not wrong in describing how they looked at the universe. You know, the Pharaoh was literally an incarnation, you know, the embodiment of the God on the earth. Mm. Uh, and the Kings had literally divine authority. And this is important for later because the, the divine nature of the King represents his rank on the earth. And this is why, because, and he says it is because they were venerated because of their transcendent quality. This is why the King is sacred. You know, this is, why he's in charge is the forces of the universe divinely ordain this person and in him they make themselves present would you say that this is also the reason why the king should not show himself very often to people should be a bit i mean uh, on a practical <clears throat> level sure yeah you know, on a practical level absolutely so people won't <laughs> get the idea that the king is human well, yeah, and that's yeah. that's what like look at the crowning of uh, Queen Elizabeth II. Yeah, you know the actual anointing is done in secret. Mm. You know, like you're not allowed to see it. But um, but he he points out that what this does is increases the ontological rank of the king. The king isn't merely a man; he is a man and something else at the okay. same time. And it's the recognition of this ontological rank that is what people defer to. It's mm. not just that he's powerful, because the king doesn't actually have to have an army to have influence and power, right? He is the king, and even you know, in English, you like the word king is a powerful <coughs> word, you know, um, when it's not being abused by people online. Yeah. Uh, but uh, but he points out that this uh, recurrent view of kingship is expressed in a variety of mythical and sacred expressions, and, and expressed in terms of what he calls imminent transcendence that is present and active in the world. So in a way, the kings are sort of like mortal gods. Okay, and this is why, again, in English folklore, the touch of a king was supposed to cure scrofula. Okay, so the the king is supposed to represent the transcendent not order represent, into not represent. He manifests. Manifests. He okay. manifests a form of transcendence okay. in his person, because represent would mean it was absent in somewhere else. Right. Okay. So it's important. Okay. I, I I'm not being picky. It's genuinely an important way to view this, because for for Vola, the the transcendental exists everywhere. Right? It's yeah. like, like a Christian view of God, but it can be summoned into reality. And one of that ways is in the divine kingship. Mm. And uh, the victory of the king, the, the, the king, the things the king does have metaphysical significance. And so, for example, the victory of the king in battle is the most important thing. Right? And this is, what, this is what Machiavelli said. A prince should have no other thought but war. You know, it's the most important thing you do. So the first, in Volo's view, is the mystical aspect. And the second is the military aspect, because, of course, the transcendent has to come first, right? Okay. The most primary thing is the upholding of the sacred solar order. That's the most important thing, you know. And then the, the, the physical manifestation of that being routing your enemies and taking control of their cities and establishing law and order. That's all secondary, right? Uh, and in the victory, in the moment of the victory, a supernatural power is manifested, in the king and you know flowing out through him 
Um, and so this is inseparably connected with the traditional idea of real and legitimate kingship. And so almost all legitimate kingships throughout history are predicated on some great victory. Okay. They're almost all predicated like on like Alexander becomes legitimate because he <laughs> defeats the Persian empire. Right. Cause I mean, he may, he, he may not have been legitimate. Philip of Macedon had another child from another wife. Um, Olympia, wanted it to be Alexander and Alexander legitimizes himself by crushing Darius. Yeah. Right. So th this is the sort of thing he's talking about. Uh, and it consecrates and gives witness to the solar triumphant nature of the King. And, uh, this, this sort of terrestrial power gushes forth from one King to another, guaranteeing an uninterrupted golden sequence of divine lineage. This is why it has to be the King's son and the legitimate son, the legitimate son. And then you've got a, the, the lineage is what becomes important. That's the, thing about tradition and honestly i i think there's something true about this which is why we talk about the fact that charles is descended from harold godwinson and william the conqueror the lineage is important and it's it's this magical power that flows with it that, okay that, that, that was created by william uh, i'm <clears throat> i'm a bit aristotelian about this and i'm I thinking that very frequently, as he says, that there is a, such a thing as kingship. Yeah. But um, in some cases, there is a deviation. Yeah. And it turns into tyranny. Yes. And yeah. and, and very frequently, this happen, happens with succession. Yeah. So, for instance, there, uh, I was thinking of Pisistratus in, mm -hmm. in Athens. Mm -hmm. That Many people think that he wasn't that bad, but his son, uh, Hippias. Yeah. It was uh, abhorrent. Yes, and that's yeah. and and he he in fact cites Aristotle in this yes. chapter um, because he would agree with you. He okay. would agree that like that the, a king who is not legitimized by the divine order by the transcendental order will just be a tyrant. Will just be a, a, a thug, mm. right? And so they are illegitimate, right? Mm. Um, but a legitimate king becomes like the center of gravity of the civilization. Okay. He becomes like the pole around which the civilization, the axis around which the civilization revolves. And he, he even, even quotes Aristotle saying, um, kings enjoy their office by virtue of being the officiating priests at their community's worship. This is a thing, something Aristotle said. Mm. So he, he's saying that the, the king is the most important religious figure in the civilization. Yeah. And he consecrates the entire civilization by virtue of being legitimate and being the center of gravity of it all. So that is, again, by manifesting that I'm representing, or no, I'm manifesting a yeah. transcendent order yes. in, the, in the world of becoming, as yes. opposed to just governing for my own sake. Yes. Okay. That's exactly right. Because he... <clears throat> that's exactly Aristotle's position, right? He was doing yeah. it for the good of the community. Um, but Evola is extracted from this a set of principles. It's not just Aristotle, he goes from all. But he, upholding a particular kind of transcend transcendental order is what makes the king legitimate. Mm. And so this means that we get to the doctrine of the poles. So the king takes on the value of a pole, which is an axis in the world. And that's what the scepter is supposed to represent. Uh, the king is the center of the universe. Um, and the sitting on the throne is a sort of initiation ritual, uh, which precedes the experience of becoming a god. Uh, but the important thing with this is the concept of stability. Again, mimicking the immutability of the transcendental, right? The, the king is an eternal uh, representative, which is why, I mean, again, in Britain, the king dies, God save the king. Yeah. You know, the king is dead, God save the king. There's no break in the lineage. There's no break in the stability of the order. 
Yeah. You know, we the king is always the king, even if he's the previous king or the now king, you know, the, okay. the present king. Um, and so the point of this, he says, is to like imbue it all with an esoteric meaning. Okay. It's, it's magical. It's something magical in people's minds. And before the death of Queen Elizabeth II, I probably would be like, that's nonsense. But after watching everything happening, I think I kind of see it. Okay. I think there was genuinely a kind of magic in there. The queen is dead, long live the king. Yeah, I, I kind of get it. I think I actually kind of get what he's saying here. And I think it might be right. <laughs> I think actually there is a kind of magic in all of this, which sounds ridiculous, but like, how else do you explain it? Okay, question. Would he say that people owe unconditional obedience to the king? Because Only while the king is embodying the transcendental doctrine of rights. Okay, so... That, that's conditional. So on the yeah. condition that the king manifests yeah. Trans yeah, yeah, the transcendent yeah. order, yeah. we are going to obey. But yes. if the king does not, yeah. the king is no longer well, legitimate. He's a, he's a tyrant. Yeah. And he's not upholding the solar order. He's so. no king. No, he's no king. Yeah. yeah. The, the king is only really the king while he upholds this solar tradition. Mm. And if he doesn't, you know, he's not imminently transcending reality. He's not mm. bringing it into existence, right? You know, in the, the person of him. And so he's not the king. You know, the okay. king is never yeah, the king yeah. unless he's doing this. And he's got to do it all the time, right? Um, but anyway, the, the point of all of this, though, is the king, the king creates a kind of uh, axis of great stability and calm with which the rest of the civilization can revolve around. And honestly, in British monarchy, that is basically what it is. Mm. And everyone knows it. Everyone knows that the reason that everyone liked Elizabeth II is because she was this continual st stabilizing presence in British politics. Yeah. That's totally true, right? And so the the king creates this great calm which pacifies adversaries with its majesty rather than even needing to come to blows. And I think that people would genuinely say, yeah, Elizabeth did that. I don't yeah. doubt that people think that Elizabeth did that, right? And so in this context, words like justice and peace and you know, anything like that, they don't have any secular meaning. They're bound up with this mythological state of affairs, that are all contained in the ontological rank of the, the monarch who is representing a magical transcendent transcendent order like you know, and, and honestly i think a lot of this we actually see present yeah. right now you know in the death of the queen and the accession of the new king that, i think that's actually a fairly accurate description of what's happening mm. wildly okay it's crazy it's <laughs> do you, so you think it's close to what people describe as something higher yes that you can see yeah. it in say this is where I see, honestly, I see that this is not just a facade. It's something high. There is something higher going on. Mm. And also, was there in the coronation, it seemed to me that at some, at some point there was a young uh, kid mm -hmm. talking to the king, saying that I'm the representative. No, I think that, that was a word. I'm the representative of the divine order. Uh, Will possibly, you? I don't remember. Offhand. Yeah, I, I think it was in the coronation ceremony. I, I don't doubt some, because they yeah. probably do think that. Yeah, they probably you know they, at least they say. Or it. that I'm the emissary of God. Will you? Yeah, probably. Yeah. I mean, you know, in the Middle Ages, it's doubtless what they believed. Yeah, you know. But this is this is what Evola is speaking to, and I mean, we can see it happening. Yeah. Like so, in a way, he's not wrong. Like obviously, a modern Republican is going to look at that and go, "What are you talking about?" <laughs> but I actually think I understand what he's talking about. <laughs> I think I've seen it. Okay. <laughs> so anyway. Crazy worldview aside. So this, he goes on to explain, this is the point of things like sacred mysteries. Um, the, the religious rites are imperative because what they do is every time you perform the rites and the rite 
doesn't have a standard form. It's different for each civilization and different for each purpose. Uh, you've got various rights for like victory rights. You've got sacrificial rights. You've got mourning rights for funerals, things like this, right? But when you do this, what he's saying is that you're kind of bringing the transcendent into place by performing the right correctly. You know, mm. when everything goes right, everyone feels like it was done properly. Like imagine, imagine like messing up a funeral, right? You know, you, you carry out the casket and you just drop it or something. Everyone's like, oh my God, that's sacrilegious, right? But yeah, exactly. Yeah. But why? But why? If it's all just material, if we're all just bodies, who care? Yeah. Right? But everyone knows that would be absolutely sacrilegious. You would never do that. It's totally yeah. disrespectful. You know, and you, you, there's something about the cosmic order that has been broken there in that example. And you'd be like, oh my God, that was the worst thing that could have happened. Why? Exactly. Why? Yeah. You know? The thing is, you cannot explain why by appealing to just material stuff no. it, the way I see it. Yeah. I, no, I totally agree. Because you, you could say, well, it's just a carcass. There's no consciousness anymore. It's just a mat matter put together Ex in, exactly. in, a, in a rotting body. Exactly. Why should you care about this rotting body? Exactly. And everyone knows that that would be abominable. <laughs> Absolutely evil. Yeah. And you <laughs> hear then the the advocate of scientism saying, this is just because you're attached to that person and you're habituated yeah. into being attached to that person. And actually you are, all of what you're saying is a lie that you tell to yourself is you are yeah. blind to the influence of habit in making you think this way. And I could easily refute that by saying, <clears throat> well, why would I be upset if it was someone I didn't know being treated that way? Right, because it's not about the individual attachment. It's about a, an order, a cosmic order that you know these things should should be done the right way and mm. shouldn't be done the wrong way. And you know that's true. Yeah. And so essentially, like I think Evola has them on these things. Yeah. I think he genuinely has them. Which again, I never thought I'd be saying, but he he genuinely has a point. Oh, yeah. So the, this is the point of the rites and the mysteries is to to like reconfirm the cosmic order. You know, and a funeral is a good example because everyone's probably been to a funeral when you get to my age. And you realize there is something at work at a funeral. You know, everyone expects a certain level of decorum and behavior and a certain kind of ritual, you know. But, uh, but in the ancient world, they had lots of different rituals, obviously. Uh, they would sacrifice an animal before a, a battle to try and instantiate victory and hope the god would be with them and things like that. Or they would have uh, ancient games to recreate the victories of heroes from ages past. Again, it's all about bringing these things back into the world, uh, the, these, you know, cosmic memories, basically, back into yeah. the world to make sure that everyone understood the divine order was functioning as it should and that they were doing their part to uphold the divine order, you know, abandoning these things. Like the games in Rome were literally the last thing to be shut down out of all yeah. of Roman religion. And they persisted for centuries afterwards into the Christian age. And it's like, why? Because they knew they had to do it. You know, they, it wasn't just for fun. They just felt they had to do it. To watch the full video, please become a premium member at lotuseaters.com.